Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing emergent technology and national security. My guest today is Dr. Brandon Valeriano. He's the Donald Bren Chair for Military Innovation attached to the Krulak Center at Marine Corps University. Dr. Valeriano has taught for over 20 years, having academic posts in the United States and United Kingdom. He also serves as a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a senior advisor for the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. His two most recent books are Cyber War versus Cyber Reality in 2015 and Cyber Strategy in 2018, both with Oxford University Press. Dr. Valeriano, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Glad to be here. Before we start our discussion about technology and national security, tell us a little bit about your background. What brought you to Marine Corps University? Well, I had been out in Britain for quite a bit of time, and um, I got Brexited. So uh, the upheaval in that whole process made me reconsider where I was and where I wanted to be. And I gotten to know eminently renowned Professor Ben Jensen uh, <laughs> around this time. He is eminently renowned. <laughs> yeah, he pulled me and sucked me into his orbit by talking to me about baseball. And the next thing I know, I ended up in Quantico. That's how my life has been changed and uh, been changed for the better because uh, we have a collaboration and working relationship that I wouldn't trade for anything. I tell people when you find a good co-author and a good partner in research, just never give that up. Well, we are certainly grateful to Ben for bringing you on board. And I will note, as the Bryn Chair for Military Innovation, you are actually on the staff of Marine Corps University Foundation. So thank you to the foundation uh, for their sponsorship of your position, because we definitely benefit from it. And now we met years ago, and I was thinking about what year it was. Was it 1999, 2000? Anyway, we were both at the beginning of our careers, and it was the first year of the Qualitative Methods Boot Camp. I feel like you were a PhD student at Vanderbilt at the time. Was that right? Yeah, I graduated in 2003, so it's probably 2002 or 2003, around then. Okay. I remember a dusty summer in Tempe, Arizona. <laughs> it, was, um, it was a wonderful experience and a great time. But what brought you from there into the field of cybersecurity and technology? Uh, the problem is, is that I've been doing quantitative research for a long time, and I kind of got sucked into the the rigmarole of quantitative research just for the sake of doing database research. And uh, I didn't really necessarily feel that fulfilled in what I was doing. I was always looking for a policy outlet. Um, Derek Reveron, who's at the Naval War College, was the most prestigious graduate we ever had at the University of Illinois Chicago, where I was a professor at the time. And he invited me out. And um, I went to one of the early Naval War College uh, conferences on cybersecurity. And what I found is that, shockingly, we didn't know too much about the domain. We had no idea about the scope and shape of attacks and uh, international engagement and just general penetration of cybersecurity issues throughout the globe. And uh, I came back home from that workshop and I told my grad student, Ryan Maness, that um, we were going to quantify cybersecurity, and he joined me on the project. And we've been working together for, geez, nearly uh, 12 years now on on this issue. And um, I have not been at a loss for things to investigate regarding emergent technology and security after that time. So you're involved at the national level with cybersecurity 
policy. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Oh, it's been eye-opening. I didn't realize how little I knew. And to work at the policy level in, in the manner that we were engaging the issue was it was life-changing in many ways. So I'm a senior advisor for the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which was commissioned on the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, to evaluate cybersecurity. And it's modeled after the Eisenhower Project to delineate our strategy for the Cold War. Well, our project was to delineate our strategy for cybersecurity moving forward. And we had three areas to investigate, the military, defense, and norms and institutions. And we had over 300 engagements, an extensive amount of travel. I basically read everything in the field of cybersecurity. I've heard every idea, and I've spent a lot of time working with Congress and crafting legislative proposals since then. And um, we are very behind in terms of crafting cybersecurity policy and strategy, but we are a lot better off than we were before. And we weren't very far before. It's really a challenge to craft viable national security policy at this level. And what is the impediment to that? Is that because classification levels are so high and so the foundational knowledge base that you would need to inform policymaking is obscure because the technology is changing so quickly? What makes this a difficult policy area to act in? Um, it's quite a few things. I mean, one, classification is not a problem. Actually, classification is something that people use to hide behind issues. And more often than not, that we found that when someone said we need to take something to the high side, it really meant that they didn't have an answer for our question. <laughs> and the reality is that we were working for government. We were working for the population, really. We're working for our citizens. And everything we need to do in terms of crafting a strategy requires it be out in the open, not to mention for the perception management and signaling management aspect of strategy, that we need to actually tell our adversaries what we don't want them to do. So being very clear and open about strategy is really a critical aspect of the issue. I think um, the impediments are a few things. One, there has been a huge push at the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps University in a war game. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, though, war gaming has not really penetrated the policy community. In fact, more often than not, people use war games and simulations to kind of prove things they already know. Mm -hmm. And they don't really use wargaming to evaluate the process of strategy. So there's no real kind of check or there's no real dissection. There's no real red team on our strategies. It's, it's a lot of groupthink. The other thing is there's not a lot of fundamental technological knowledge. And that's not the biggest deal because you can only get a staffer or an advisor. But many times people don't even have that sort of basic foundation. And the main thing, though, the problem I really uh, and Ben and I really kind of pick on this is there are a lot of people in the policy space that have no research ability. They have no background in the field. They don't read much and they make large projections and prognostications based on their gut feeling that has no evidence. That's the real problem. A lot of people think they know how cybersecurity works, whereas a scholar and a researcher, I want to know how does it work? I want to see the evidence. I want to see the data. I tell people, I don't want them to tell me how it should work, how they think things work. I think as scholars and researchers, we should know how things work. And the problem is we don't know how a lot of things work in the aspect of technology and national security. Well, frankly, I think this is a challenge, not just as relates to cybersecurity or technology, but I think we see this across policymaking and national strategy 
writ large, right? There's a oh yeah, yeah. Particularly now, I think we're in a moment where people seem very comfortable to speak on topics about which they are not expert. And expertise, actual subject matter expertise, can be denigrated as elitist. Yeah, it's a challenge. So tell us what you're working on now. Are you still in the area of cybersecurity or is your research shifted? Um, it's shifted a bit. We're a bit broader now. I'm kind of billing myself as someone who does emergent technology. And um, Ben Jensen and Jackie Schneider at the Hoover Institute, we have a book series on Oxford looking at emergent technology and national security. So I'm trying to take a kind of a more of a field level perspective now and trying to craft the field in this area. Uh, I want to try and encourage younger scholars and emerging scholars to really have a voice in this area. Because I think, as I've said before, I think we have a lot of people who don't really, who can really contribute to the dialogue that are not. And that's something I'm really passionate about. In terms of concrete research, right now we're working on escalation and technology. I think people are really guessing at escalation strategies, which is really critical because um, if we want to avoid war, we need to understand how war might happen when advanced technologies like cyber, drones, AI are used and leveraged as threats and as compellence devices. Is this a sense that escalation would come as an unintended consequence of of a use of, of emerging technology where maybe the actors hadn't thought through the second and third order consequences? Or what are the what's the relationship between escalation and emergent That's technology? That's really the fear. And I think a lot of people assume that these new technologies might be escalatory. Um, but Ben and I are finding that we're as uh, technology allows for states to have a off ramp sometimes mm. in some ways that technology can be like sanctions. Like no one knows what they really are. No one knows what they really do. No one knows what their impacts really going to be till long after the event. There's a lot of mysticism with technology. So you can make a threat and there may not be very high audience costs on that threat. And you can kind of signal to the adversary that you're doing something, that you're trying to shape their behavior and what they, you don't want them to do. But you can also shape, uh, signal to your population that you're also doing something. So it allows kind of a pause. It allows kind of an off ramp. There's also situations where technological advances can be very escalatory. Primarily when there's a state that has a lot of technology is kind of bullying on a state that doesn't have technology. We're finding a lot of experimental treatments that suggest inequality is a real trigger for escalation. Mm. There's, there's, but there's really just a lot we don't know about escalatory practices and perceptions and um, populations. Uh, ben and I have surveyed Americans, Russians, and Israelis. Uh, you're not allowed to survey Chinese on political topics. But um, we targeted these three populations, and we found that each population had vastly different ideas about escalation. Russians are very min-max. They go all in or they go all out. Americans are very proportional. And the Israelis don't really have a set style or pattern, but they have a unique amount of national unity, probably crafted by their shared view of service and common religion and things like that, that kind of has a cohesive population outcome, but there's no real preference for one thing or another. So there's just a lot we don't know about escalation. So uh, Ben and I are going to take this year to really hammer out that book right now. That's, that's our main thing going forward. And then we're going to look to do some work on repression and um, offsets and technology. Those will be our two next books after that. We're just kind of going to keep rolling with books until we burn ourselves out, I think. <laughs> that is one approach. It's interesting to think about escalation and technology. And as you had identified, when there is 
a significant difference between the technological capacity of one actor versus the other. You know, the Commandant's planning guidance and all of the force design efforts that have followed that are are focused on not prioritizing, to use the Commandant's terms, these exquisite resources or exquisite assets. We don't want to put all all of this money into the this very niche, technologically superior capability, but uh, we also need to invest significantly in lower end but more broadly applicable technology. Does that help to shrink that gap between the technological haves and have-nots? Would that be de-escalatory, potentially? I think so in the long run, and I think that's really important, that I think all national militaries need to start to focus on modernization. They need to start to focus on shared standards. They need to focus on avoiding duplication. And that's a key challenge for the American military. Um, I wrote a big paper with the Cato Institute on uh, reframing our national strategy. And the duplication and the lack of modernization and the the old reliance on manpower, mm-hmm. I think is something we really need to change our mindset on moving forward, especially since we may be moving and operating in times of limited budgets moving forward. Yeah, oh, I think that's right. Absolutely. So I want us to come back. You had raised the issue of wargaming uh, a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Wargaming Central here at Marine Corps University. We have a, a significant uh, multi-million dollar initiative to develop gaming across the university officer and enlisted resident and distance programs. You have done a lot at this university the past couple of years to build out support to gaming at our different schools. Tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing and then what you've got planned for next year. Uh, my understanding mm-hmm. is you've got some things in the hopper with the Gray Scholars Program at CSC. Yeah, we have a lot going on. I think uh, one line of effort would be the Gray Scholars Program through the Command and Staff College, which is really our more advanced focused students who want to kind of take a deeper stab at research. And working with McWill and the, the Command Game Platform, we're starting to do more advanced war games. And um, we're really tasking our students to think differently, to think about doctrine issues, to think about strategic issues, to think about what they're trying to do to be at the forefront of what the Commandant needs and what the Marine Corps needs. So that's a huge line of effort. We had 13 students working on that this last year, and we just pushed them through to MMS. So um, that was a fun time for me overall, because, uh, you know, you can imagine that's 13 40-page papers reading (laughs) over and over again. But uh, uh, it was a really valuable effort, and I hope we can do it again next year. Ben and I are also working on research, uh, wargaming as research. So we're working with Jackie Snyder. There's Andrew Reddy out of Berkeley. There's Reed Pauley out of MIT. There's a young cohort of um, strong academic scholars who are starting to think about as wargaming as more of a research methodology to find out about success of strategies, metrics, evaluating opinions, evaluating how decision makers act. I I think too often a lot of people think about wargames as a way of communicating ideas or maybe trying to break an idea, but they don't think about patterns and research methodologies. So we're really at the forefront of that, and hopefully we're going to have an edited volume out at Oxford uh, next year probably. The other line of effort I think we really need to move forward with, especially in these times of distance education, is quick and simple wargaming platforms that our students and our troops can use just about anywhere to learn about strategic decision making. So we're hoping to pair with the Naval Postgraduate School 
and uh, some of their offerings to start to look at these sort of quicker platforms. Uh, one of the problems with board games, uh, you know, actually is that sometimes you'll sit down for a session and it'll be an hour of rules, an hour of telling you how this is going to operate, three hours to play the game, and then like two or three hours of trying to dissect the game, which is great if you have a full day, but I don't think a lot of people have a full day to really dive into a war game. So I'm starting to think more about like, uh, capsulated war games, quicker war games, easier, more accessible war games that we can get someone to play in maybe 20 to 40 minutes. I think that would be an interesting move forward. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Then you could conceivably your homework for the night, if you're in, enrolled in one of the PME programs, could be to complete a turn. And then that's something you could collectively discuss in seminar the next day. Yeah. Um, and I also have an intern coming in the summer who I just want to look at um, like iPad games, mm-hmm. you know, simple, accessible games that maybe someone can play when they're on duty and, you know, have 15 minutes to kill things like that. I, I want to look at simple platforms. And uh, this is something we've learned from command that if you have a viable platform that can be disseminated to a lot of different people, that's very useful. But command is a very intensive game that takes a long time to learn. So we need to think about more accessible options. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we're thinking, I'm thinking about it in terms of MCU students, but you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right. The larger demand, the larger need is out in the fleet that Marines across the force can play maybe particular rank appropriate games or potentially over the course of a career could engage similar scenarios from different perspectives and get potentially hundreds, dozens, hundreds of iterations on a particular problem. So if they were to experience it out in the fleet in an operational environment, they would have that preparation already in the bag. Yeah. And you see a lot of that in science fiction stories, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think science fiction isn't really a predictor of the future. I think it's a reflection of current realities and Ender's Game. And, you know, there's so many examples, even Star Trek, right? You know, and they had the Kobarashi Maru, the, the unsolvable problem. <laughs> You know, all these versions of science fiction have an aspect of, say, like wargaming and decision making that militaries would be doing. But I don't know if we do that, you know, kind of at the home level at this point. I don't know if we do that and kind of integrate it with the daily life. And I think that's something we need to start to think about doing. We want our Marines to write. We want to them to engage in the public space. But we also want them to, you know, play war games on their downtime, to to think about some of these things as a aspect of fun, but also to help us learn a little bit more about uh, decision making and processes and national security. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm with you 100 percent. It is. I think there is absolutely an appropriate role for deep reading and thinking and everyone should engage challenging texts and and take time to read and struggle with what you read but i think it is uh, wrong-headed to limit our understanding of professional development just to reading books or academic professional articles i, I can absolutely see the value for professional growth in gaming and other kind of fun activities you can learn from things that are also fun to do. And while there are certain people who derive a lot of enjoyment out of reading, I, I got a PhD, so I happen to be one of them. There are plenty of people who don't, right? <laughs> and, and part of educating yeah. is understanding your audience and finding ways to reach them in ways that will resonate. If we want to build lifelong learners, people who habituate the practice of learning, we've got to offer opportunities for them to learn in ways that, that they connect with. And this is a phenomenal way to do that. So good on you. 
Yeah, exactly. I've always kind of thought about these things. Um, when I was at the University of Illinois Chicago, I used to teach a summer class. And it was mainly people who were there for sports, and they really didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. So I just reconceptualized the entire class and the entire idea of how we teach intro to IR through film. And then I wrote it up and published it as a methodology because, you know, it, it was just something we needed to do at the time. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be cognizant of there's different methods of learning. There's different things that people need to think about. There's different ways of engagement. And uh, we need to think about how we reach our students a little bit better. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of technology we can use to leverage our ideas and to leverage research. So coming back to this question of preparing for the future fight and emerging technology, if people wanted to learn more, where should they look? I really get a lot out of the discourse that we have kind of there's kind of this 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 military publication discourse online, War on the Rock, Strategy Bridge, Just Security, the Twitter sphere in some ways. There's a lot of great work that's being pushed out that is really looking at emergent questions that don't have a large body of knowledge. And I think that's where I get a lot of the reading that I do from. But also, I hope our students are engaging in these platforms. I hope they're being part of this process. And I always try and push my better students to engage. But I think this is what's really interesting, especially during a time of COVID. Keeping the discussion going is very difficult. We're not going to be in social spaces anymore. We're just, you know, I'm not going to talk to Don Bishop like I usually do daily about old movies and the things we read last night. And doing that online and virtual spaces is going to be really important over the next few months. And I think that's that's critical to keeping us sane. And on top of that, I think right now I have just three different windows of uh, online video um, events that I need to watch today because there's just so much going on online. And uh, we, I think we're trying to make ourselves busy. And, and I think that's great. There's a, there's a lot out there for our troops to learn. Absolutely. And I've been very encouraged as we shifted to to online instruction. Gosh, it's been two months. I think it's two months ago today, maybe, uh, that we made that transition. Just how seamlessly that has gone. And and I think yeah. it, it does provide a way forward that people who maybe didn't think that they could access intellectually challenging material through a virtual platform are gaining some confidence that, that actually it is worth the investment. It takes some time, but that it is worth the investment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've been teaching online this year for American University because the aforementioned Ben Jensen made me. (laughs) He couldn't do a Tuesday night class or something. So I've been doing a Tuesday night class at 9 p.m. since January. And uh, yeah, it's not the best for my schedule. But what it did do, though, is I was immediately prepared for our current challenge. And I had gotten used to these online platforms. And I don't have a problem with them. I think we can recreate a seminar room in an online video conferencing platform. The challenge, though, is the bigger rooms, the bigger events, getting to Mm -hmm. hear everyone, uh, reading the room. I think you could read the room among nine or 12 people in a Zoom or, you know, in in a WebEx platform. But after that, you can't really look at each individual person. So there's something lost after a time. It takes a while to build up rapport, but I think these methods are going to serve us quite well long-term into the future. So you had mentioned conversations with Don Bishop, uh, who was on our podcast a few episodes ago talking about strategic communication and what you had read last night. And this is our final question we ask all of our guests. What are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? 
I'm the worst at this. Um, <laughs> I feel bad because I, I think all our troops look to me for great reading advice. And I, I think something people don't get sometimes is that, you know, I'm at the forefront of trying to create a cybersecurity field in some ways. So I get every journal article and every book. And today some journal in Poland asked me to review something. And, oh, it's just so much. But what I really get out of, um, what I really try and dive into is popular culture. So I spent a lot of time on YouTube, and I, I think this is critical for the Don Bishop framing of the issue, too, is that what does strategic communication look like into the future? What does information graphics look like into the future? How are we going to communicate? What are the younger people really looking for? You know, And we're finding these asynchronous um, teaching methods are really working because people really just want an eight or ten minute kind of short introduction to a topic. Then they want to read about it and then they want to talk about it, but they don't want a 40 minute dissection of mm -hmm. an issue. And um, that's kind of the style we're getting online now. So I get a lot out of YouTube, particularly right now as we're all stuck at home. Uh, I like a lot of travel kind of um, bloggers, people like that. I did buy quite a few books on the plagues of the past to kind of learn about the future, but then I found <laughs> it too, too depressing. So I kind of gave up on that idea. In the long run, I think I probably shouldn't go back to reading about Star Wars because it makes me feel better. It's a little more comforting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think uh, I can understand Jedi's and, and lightsabers. I can't understand COVID and uh, all these other repercussions we have in modern society. Well, Dr. Valeriano, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at, at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Jen Pajahal, and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWarCollege. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Rivero. Have a great day.